This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Millions of people will be infected by COVID in the coming weeks, according to Health Minister Mark Butler. We're still only in the early stages of a building third Omicron wave just this year alone. Who says we have not yet reached the peak of a new wave. States across the country are reporting increased numbers of cases. There are now almost 4,000 hospital beds across the country uh, filled by patients with COVID. This wave is being driven by a new variant, one which we are learning more about every day. What is clear about BA4 and BA5 is that they are even more transmissible, even more infectious than the earlier subvariants that drove the summer wave. But as case numbers rise into the hundreds of thousands per week, and deaths sadly continue to climb past 10,000, the new Labor government has begun to pull back pandemic support. While you can still access free PCR and rat testing at drive-in clinics around the country, over-the-counter subsidies for rats will disappear at the end of July. People did know that winter was coming. People did know that these were challenges that we had to deal with. Subsidies for longer telehealth appointments, paid sick leave and free pharmacy delivery have already ended. The former government made the decision that this support would stop on the 1st of July. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about how Labor is managing the new COVID wave. It's Friday, the 15th of July. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Lenore, where are we when it comes to this pandemic? At times, it feels like we're back to square one with this new variant. At others, it feels like some people are acting like it's all over. It's strange. It seems we've reached this sort of strange, slightly disconnected phase of the pandemic. And I should probably insert a writer here to say that I'm recovering from COVID myself at the moment. So that may be colouring my view and is certainly affecting my, my voice. But I think we're at this stage where we're starting to almost set policies as if it's over or about to be over when in fact infections are soaring and, as the Minister said, are set to sort of rise to the millions in the next few weeks. And death rates are also increasing and hospitals are under strain again and ambulances are under strain again. And, you know, we're past 10,000 deaths now and 8,500 of those deaths happened this year. And yet at the same time, the government is sort of pressing ahead with the ending of benefits and restrictions put in place under the previous government, like the free rats for low-income people or Medicare-subsidised long telehealth appointments, mask mandates. Some state governments are actually not taking advice from their health officers to introduce very limited mask mandates. I mean, there's lots of reasons for all of this. Some, you know, reasonable and some not so reasonable in my opinion. It's complex, but it does feel like there's this disconnect between what's happening on the public policy side of the ledger and what's happening in the real world, sort of like the disconnect we saw before everything went to hell in a handbasket at Christmas time. Yeah, one of the windbacks that I was really surprised at, Mike, was the delivery of COVID medication, the home delivery of COVID medication. How have they justified that? And were you surprised at any of the other measures that have been wound back? I guess uh, 
in a way, it's not surprising that they've wound back the ones that cost a lot of money. So another one was the paid pandemic leave, which ended on the 30th of June. And so far, the government has insisted that they would not be restarting that. Jim Chalmers said that was costing something like $60 million a week. Obviously, that also goes for the uh, subsidies for free rapid antigen tests and the telehealth consultations. They all cost money. And... The government is conscious of the budget, as it obviously always is and has to be. And with the Home Medicine Service, which also ended on June 30th, so that means people who get COVID and who previously could get their antivirals or other medicines delivered to them from the pharmacy can no longer do so. So they either have to find someone else to go and get them for them or they have to go get them themselves, which, since they, by definition, have COVID, seems like a particularly poor outcome in terms of restricting the spread. So yeah, there's a lot of complicated calculations they're trying to make, and most of which are financial, I think. But there are also some things they could be doing that do not cost money that I think where they've more obviously been slightly caught off balance and could have reacted faster to change the public mood about where we're at with COVID at the moment. Like what? Well, for example, masks, encouraging people to wear masks. That's what they're saying we should be doing. No one wants to bring back mask mandates. And there is, you know, diminishing returns from mandates. There's a certain amount of time when people will obey them when they think they're achieving a public health goal. But eventually everyone gets tired. They get careless. In that circumstance, if you don't want to mandate them, then you have to have a strong policy of positively encouraging through public health campaigns and through modelling as well, like we're seeing politicians of all kinds getting up in very public arenas. We saw Anthony Albanese, for example, having his booster shot without having a mask on. And that kind of stuff is free and is an obvious thing that they should be doing more aggressively, I think. The same goes for public campaigns on people getting their booster shots. The um, third booster shot Figures have stalled completely. We did very well with the, getting everyone up to the second shot last year. That was partly because there were mandates. But now those numbers are completely stalled. And in some cases, it's the most vulnerable populations who are not getting them. And there's a clear case where the public health messaging could be much stronger around that and could have a big impact on the, where we're at with the numbers. Lenore, the Guardian Essential poll this week was very interesting on how people are feeling about COVID. Interesting and kind of contradictory. So when people were asked how many deaths each year from the virus they would think was, you know, a reasonable number that we could live with, only 6% said between 5,000 and 10,000 a year, which is where we're at. 90% of people nominated a lower death rate. So 90% of people thought the current rate of death was not acceptable. But at the very same time, in the very same poll, more than half the sample thought we needed to treat COVID just like flu and get on with normal life. I don't know that those views are consistent, but that's what people were saying. Feels a bit like magical thinking, doesn't it? A little bit. It is absolutely mind-boggling, though, to think about the numbers when you think about where we were at various other stages of the pandemic, when the daily numbers would come out Mm. and we'd absolutely lose our minds if there were... I don't know. 17. 500 (laughs) cases in Victoria or whatever it might be. And that seemed like a horror kind of figure. And of course, because at that time that meant probably, you know, we're not going to lift lockdown for X number of weeks or months. And now, because it doesn't have those implications for the restrictions that were in place, then it's just kind of, oh, like 50 to 100 people have died today. I don't think people are okay with that. If you say to them, you know, do you think it's okay that 70 people have died today of COVID. They're obviously they're going to say, no, it's absolutely terrible. Uh, but in terms of how people, how it's influencing people's behaviour, it has very little impact, it seems. Mm. Lenore, 
There was a lot of criticism of the previous government not having a cohesive, coherent public health message. Do you think Labor is improving on that or do you think this is still a problem? I really do think it's still a problem. I can sort of in some ways see why the new government is doing what they're doing. I mean, their overall strategy is to be sort of getting on with calm, competent government and taking the heat out of the political debate, et cetera, et cetera. So sort of reintroducing COVID emergency measures runs counter to that. I think they're right. It does have to stop one day. You can't have free rats and pandemic leave forever and there's never going to be a good time and they do have to rein in spending. And to be fair to them, they're doing a bunch of other things at the same time, like expanding access to the fourth dose of vaccines and taking away some of the restrictions for people to get those really effective antiviral medications and encouraging people to work from home again and other things. And then they're also sort of emphasising now that you can still get free PCRs if you, you know, go to those sort of drive-through centres. All of that is true. However, I think the consequences for low-income and insecure workers are so immediate. You know, if you are a casual worker, you get up with a little bit of a sniffle. Are you going to pay 10 bucks every time that happens to do a test with cost of living how it is? Are you going to have time to go and drive to a PCR testing station to get a test and wait till you get the result back? And if you don't, then the consequences flow on, right? Then you get it, it spreads further, the wave gets bigger, the knock-on consequences for hospitals and ambulances and everything else are more. You come into contact potentially with, you know, vulnerable people and the consequences there could be terrible. So I do, like personally, I do wonder whether it would have been wise to just extend some of those measures just till the end of winter, just till we're through this wave. But to your question, if the government is going to really step back and lean in on personal responsibility on people doing just choosing to do the right thing, then as Mike says, you really have to message that and really explain to people the benefits and the potential harm and consequences of not wearing a mask in a public place or in a crowded place, of not getting their boosters, you know, of, of not doing all the things that we've been told to do. You need to, I think, make that messaging about collective responsibility, about doing it not just for yourself but for everyone else. The choice you might make because of your health circumstance or your family circumstance might be fine but it might have, you know, literally life and death consequences for other people in the community. I feel like that messaging has been poor and if governments are going to take this step back and let this turn into sort of something like COVID normal, if they're not going to extend things through this wave, they should at least really smash home that messaging. And, and I don't really think they've been doing that. Mm. And the, the weird disconnect that Lenore talked about at the start, where case numbers and deaths are rising so, and hospitalizations are rising so sharply, but at the same time, restrictions are coming off, sort of speaks to a theme that we've talked about a lot over the course of the pandemic, which is that it affects different groups of people in different mm. ways. So if you're in a job where you can work from home, you're relatively young and relatively healthy and don't have vulnerable relatives or caring for you're people, sweet. then you're probably, the worst that's going to happen is that you have to spend a week off work recovering from COVID, which can be nasty. But for other groups of people like casual workers, as Lenore mentioned, and people in aged care or older people generally, or people with a disability or uh, with underlying health conditions of some of a serious kind, then it's a completely different story. And 
you know, you'd hope this government is competent to talk about all those things in the round and generate that collective public feeling that is necessary for an actual a naturally effective public health response. And I think we have to face up to the fact that what we're doing means that immunocompromised people are choosing to live in virtual isolation because they can't go into public places because the risk is too high. And, you know, one of the things that happened this week that I found, like, totally perplexing is that, you know, there's almost 100 aged care residents dying from COVID a week and there's 700 outbreaks in aged care centres right now. And at the same time, we're rolling back restrictions on visitors to aged care homes. I mean, go figure. I just don't understand why there seems to be a sort of all or nothing approach to regulations and why we can't keep some that are particularly effective at protecting you know, the most vulnerable people, as Mike says. If public and political will for mandates is low, what are Labor's options? They need to get on the front foot a bit with the rhetoric. I mean, we've talked about the public health messaging, but they need to come up with some measures that are not that difficult to promote, not to not necessarily to enforce mandates. But, for example, we learned this week that New Zealand is providing free N95 masks to its population. That's not a terribly expensive measure that could very easily be promoted and, and would send, not, not just to have the practical impact, but would also send the message that it's important to wear a mask and a mask that works and how to do it and so on. You know, we went through this right at the start of the pandemic with all this videos of showing people how to wear a mask and all that stuff, which seems very old hat now, but it's actually necessary again and it would be an extremely cost-effective health measure. Instead, I mean, you know, this is not their entire rhetoric, but we heard Anthony Albanese on um, Wednesday talking about the decisions to end the free subsidies for rapid antigen tests, saying that uh, this government inherited those decisions from the previous government and so kind of there's nothing we can do about it, which, you know, not an impressive answer. The, the, when you are actually the, previous the, governments, the actual When you are government. actually the government mm. is, is not really cutting it. You know? Yeah, it did have a bit of a that's not my job yeah, <laughs> ring to exactly. it. Today. We ran a column this week by two health experts saying Australia has lost the plot when it comes to public messaging and, you know, they did um, have some advice for the media. Lenore, what's our role in public health messaging? I mean, I think to be considered and nuanced, which, you know, is a challenge for the media sometimes. You know, lots of people have lots of different perspectives on this whole question, but I think there has been a tendency in some parts of the media to talk up the sort of economic disaster that will ensue if any of these measures are extended at all and, you know, that it's a terrible thing and big government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And clearly that is a view from the business lobby. Like the business lobby was not at all happy when Mark Butler and uh, some of the states this week said, look, work from home if you can for the next little while while we deal with this next wave because they want everyone to go back to work and spend money in the city. And almost sort of right on cue, the Australian ran an editorial strongly supporting the government winding back all these measures and sort of instructing Butler with a sort of finger-wagging tone to be very careful about advising people to work from home because of the economic impacts, which you know is, as I say, one perspective. But you could also talk about the economic impacts of another wave, meaning businesses don't have any staff to run their business anyway. Mm. And the next push that is sort of starting to filter into that commentary is to try to cut the time that we're required to isolate. So, you know, in Australia, it's still seven days and that is consistent with our public health advice. Certainly the business lobby is really pushing for that to come down to five days, which is the case in the USA and the UK. I mean, the UK, I think they just say 
try to stay home for five days. I mean, I don't even know what that means. I hope we leave it at seven days because I think, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that you can still be infectious on day six and seven. So I don't really understand the point of bringing it down to five days. But that is another push that's coming, you know, from the people who are most concerned about the immediate economic impact. Mm. As Lenore said, the economic impacts of a a bigger COVID wave coming, uh, you know, different from the short-term impacts of uh, advising people to work from home. And the government needs to take that into account when it's thinking about the budget as well, which um, no doubt it is, um, that you can't just look at the payments for um, free rats and so on in the immediate term if if measures that they take off to save a bit of money now end up costing more down the track then mm. that's not a good investment you know the, it's very hard to know where to where to draw that line but the size of the numbers going up right now suggests that there is a possibility that you know if we really no one knows where we're at in this pandemic you know we could be at the start <laughs> i don't want to say that but mm. it's felt for a long time as though oh well you know we're coming out of the pandemic but we don't actually know that and the numbers at the moment don't suggest it so when you're thinking about how and where to spend money sometimes spending some money now might be putting off losing more down the track next new rules and new leaders Okay, now we come to what you can't get out of your head. Lenore, what stuck in your mind this week? We ran the story this week about the Splendour in the Grass Festival changing the rules like right at the last minute to require anyone under 18 to have a chaperone with them at all times, an adult chaperone when they went to the festival. As a result of that, Guardian staff got together and wrote little snippets about stories about their experiences being chaperoned or not chaperoned as teenagers going to concerts, which were hilarious. I didn't get time to write a snippet, but I did think at the time about, was just before the pandemic, and I chaperoned my then 14-year-old daughter to a Billie Eilish concert. She immediately disappeared up the front, right down the front. I had kind of resigned myself to sitting up the back, drinking a few of the pre-mixed vodkas I was allowed to drink because I had a little (laughs) wristband on guaranteeing that I was over 18 because, you know, I needed a wristband to make that clear. And I discovered two things. One, Billie Eilish is really good. And two, um, pre-mixed vodkas aren't that bad either. I had a really good night and so did my daughter. So I thought I should just give the chaperone's perspective on it. All right, Mike, what stuck in your mind this week? Uh, so my favourite story this week was about the Tory leadership election in the UK, uh, which, like, talking about disconnects, this party has been in power for more than a decade and they've thrown up 10 candidates, all of whom seem to be... I don't know how to put this politely. <laughs> less suitable than the last. I was waiting. Well, less suitable than the last one. Thank you. An absolutely mind-boggling array of candidates. And the, but the story I really liked about it. I mean, you shouldn't make fun about it because these people are going to be in charge, or one of them is going to be in charge fairly soon of uh, the UK. But the story I really liked about it was a review by our film critic Peter Bradshaw in the UK of the videos that the candidates had made. He's got some very funny lines about what they're like. But my favourite part of it was the one about Penny Mordant, who is, as we learnt on Thursday morning, did particularly well in the first ballot. You know, could be a serious candidate to be the leader. And her her slogan was, our leadership needs to become a little less about the leader and a lot more about the ship. (laughs) And you think... (laughs) 
<laughs> like she used to be a royal in the Royal Navy, so it sort of feels like it's hinting at that, but she doesn't mention that in the video. You have to understand that. But also you hear the slogan and you think, oh, yeah, right, less about the leader. That's okay, that's quite good. You know, maybe it's more about the collective or something. But then, like, more about the... What, what what is the sh more about the ship? What what's the ship? <laughs> anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed the videos. If you can't bear to watch the uh, UK Tory election, at least you can watch the their terrible videos. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And you can even leave us a rating or review. We would very much appreciate it. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Jane Lee will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then.